Good morning, everyone. Um, if y'all could just uh, stand, we're about to do the reading of the word for today. Um, we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 35 to 44. So there's 35 to the end of it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, somebody can get you a Bible. If you just raise your hand, uh, someone will be passing around Bibles. Um, so again, that's Mark 12. And verses 35 to the end, um, while some of those Bibles are getting to you or you're looking in your um, Bible, I'm going to read the text in Spanish, um, and then I'll just read it in English after. So, Mientras Jesús enseñaba en el templo, les preguntó, ¿Por qué dicen los maestros de la ley que el Cristo es hijo de David? David mismo, hablando por el Espíritu Santo, dijo, El Señor dijo a mi Señor, siéntate a mi derecha hasta que ponga a tus enemigos debajo de tus pies. ¿Cómo pues puede ser hijo de David si el propio David lo llama Señor? La gente lo escuchaba con agrado. Jesús continuó enseñando y les decía, cuídense de los maestros de la ley, pues a ellos les gusta pasearse vestidos con ropas que llaman la atención para que los saluden en las plazas. También les gusta ocupar los primeros asientos en las sinagogas y los lugares de honor en los banquetes. Les quitan sus bienes a las viudas y luego ocultan ese hecho con largas oraciones para impresionar a los demás. Esos recibirán mayor castigo. Jesús se sentó frente al lugar donde se ve Depositaban las ofrendas en el templo y se puso a observar cómo la gente echaba su dinero. Muchos ricos depositaban grandes cantidades. También llegó una viuda pobre y, hecho en el, y echó en, el caja, en la caja de las ofrendas dos moneditas de muy poco valor. Entonces Jesús indicó a sus discípulos que se le acercaran Y les dijo, les aseguro que esta viuda pobre ha echado más en el tesoro que todos los otros. Todos echaron de lo que les sobraba, pero ella, siendo tan pobre, le dio todo lo que tenía para vivir. Mark 12, 35 to 44. Um, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor wo widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. I always say that to my people back at New City Fellowship in Manassas, where I get the privilege of pastoring, and because uh, we're not kind of sectarians or in one kind of, uh, like one isolated church, we're actually all family together as a universal body of Christ, and so it's a joy to be back here with you. If we've never met before, my name's Will, and uh, I was at Sojourn a, a couple of years back before we planted the church, I had the privilege of serving as a church planting resident here and being prepared to be launched out, and I look forward to telling you a little bit more about what the Lord's been doing in our midst uh, towards the end of the service. But for now, really looking forward to walking through uh, this passage um, this morning. We've been walking through Mark's gospel at our church uh, in Manassas, and it's a joy to be able to um, bring some of what we're reflecting on to uh, your midst here at, at Sojourn this morning. So let's pray together and invite God to speak to us through his word. Lord, I was struck as we were singing that we are prone to making our worship and our expression of our love for you actually just into a talent show. And if I'm honest before my brothers and sisters, I am prone to doing that regularly. I'm prone to doing what the scribes in this passage were doing, conducting religious exercises, but doing it so that all eyes are on me, and I pray that you would allow me to rid myself of that right now and to simply speak your word. Lord, I pray that the people gathered in this room would have a clearer picture of who you are, of what it looks like to follow you and to worship you, and I pray that you would fill me with your spirit that um, we might accomplish just that. Lord, I, I do need your help right now. I'm dependent on you, and so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me and you would bless the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. How many military kids do we have in the room? Let me just see a show of hands. Screw up in a military family. We've got a few. Anybody do any international? Uh, tr just yell out somewhere if you went somewhere internationally. Where was that? Peru. Any anybody anywhere else? Haiti. Haiti. Wow. Anywhere else? Any other military kids? Well, I was a military kid, and uh, that might be why I never actually served in the military. Um, but because of that, we did a good bit of traveling. And so uh, at a pretty early age, actually just when Lion King was coming out in the 90s, my family was stationed in Kenya where we lived for about three years. And so was able to kind of experience that, that great film in, uh, in person. And on our way to Kenya, we uh, were able to kind of do a little bit of rest and recovery in the country of Germany. We got a strong military presence there. And so we flew in. I was probably about six years old. And we were there to just kind of enjoy our before we went uh, down to the continent of Africa. And uh, while we were there, I remember on one particular occasion that we were able to do kind of a sightseeing uh, hike through some of the mountain ranges that were there. And I remember as we were walking through these mountain ranges, it being one of the most beautiful things that I had ever seen as a young six-year-old. There were castles off in the distance. There were rolling mountain ranges at other places with snow-top mountains. There was beautiful colors of green as we walked through the 
weather was, the weather was perfect. And then when we got to uh, one particular place on our hike, it was one of the most serene, beautiful pictures we'd ever seen. It was this stream flowing with snow-melted water uh, down the mountain, kind of like you'd see in maybe a Deer Park commercial or something uh, like that. The water I'm using this morning is uh, Essential Every Day, so something you might see in an Essential Every Day commercial. Just this beautiful moment, and we were tired and thirsty from our journey, and we'd seen in uh, movies people just kind of cup their hand around a stream, and so we enjoyed some of of that pure, pristine water that was flowing off this mountain. It was so beautiful. It was so satisfying until a couple of days later, we realized that satisfying water that we were drinking out of carried with it an unfriendly parasite known as Giardia. Have any of you ever met this unfriendly parasite before? I hope not. Some, some have in the room. And what that basically meant for us to keep it clean for church, in the words of Brian Regan, is it caused everything that was on the inside to want to be on the outside. It, it was a completely miserable experience that kind of ruined the rest of our stay in the country of Germany, all because we were looking at something that looked like it was pure, satisfying, and good. But unseen to the human eye, there were some things in it that caused it to be polluted. What we're going to talk about this morning from Mark chapter 12, is a type of worship that looks really good. A type of worship that's maybe filled with Bible knowledge and theologically astute prayers. A, a type of worship that looks good to the human eye, but before God, it actually makes him sick. It actually makes him sick. It's a type of worship that looks good to the human eye, but is actually polluted. This passage that we're going to look at is not the first time that God has addressed this kind of worship. It's actually been a type of worship that's been found amongst the people of God for quite a long time. And just to clarify, when I say worship, I don't just mean what we're doing when we sing songs. In the chapter just before, the passage just before this one, Jesus described what the essence of true worship or a life oriented to God is all about. We're to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That is what a life oriented towards God, a life of worship looks like. But yet again, there's a, a way that we can do that that looks like it's a life of worship, but once again is quite polluted. The Lord, through Isaiah, back in chapter 1, verse 13, in Isaiah 1, addressed this type of worship, saying this to the people in that day. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being, the Lord said to them. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of, be of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. If you were listening closely, some of the very same things that God, through Isaiah, was addressing in this passage, show up in the passage in Mark that we just read. Nice festivals, religious celebration, lengthy prayers, great expressions of devotion and worship, all the while the people in the land who were suffering and oppressed were neglected. 
this type of worship was found in Isaiah's day, it was found in Mark's day, and if we're honest, it can be found in our very own lives. Because listen, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're not put in the gospel accounts so that we have kind of a, a, a villain that we can dislike as we read through the story. The, the scribes and the Pharisees are put in the New Testament record because if we're honest, a lot of the things that they do, we're prone to ourselves. And so this morning, this passage calls us to replace worship that's polluted with worship that's pure. The way that it's going to do that is through contrast. What we're going to see as we walk through this passage are four contrasts between worship that may to the human eye look really good, but at its heart is polluted and makes God sick. He hates it. We're going to contrast that type of worship with a worship that's pure, a worship that's pleasing to God, a worship that's offered to him that he delights in. And so we'll begin with the first contrast that is taken from verse 35. The first contrast that we see in this passage between worship that's polluted and worship that's pure is this. Polluted worship makes Jesus small, while pure worship, listen to me specifically, gladly magnifies him. Polluted worship makes Jesus small. Pure worship gladly makes him big, magnifies him. So beginning in verse 35, Jesus is indicting the scribes because of a view that they held about his identity. The Gospel of Mark, one of its chief purposes is to help us understand who Jesus is. That, that he's more than just a human being. He's more than just an angelic figure. Jesus is more significant, more powerful, more awesome than any of our wildest imaginations could come up with. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's who Mark has been revealing us to, has been revealing to us him to be. The, the religious leaders, the scribes in this passage, had a view of Jesus that was far too small. There was a lot of discussion in those days about this figure called the Christ, or the anointed one, the Messiah, who was promised and who was going to come and fix everything that was broken in Israel. And the word on the street and the word that the scribes were spreading was, this Messiah figure is a, a descendant of David. He's, he's just kind of one among many. He's, we've had lots of kings before. He'll be just like that. Or maybe he'll be some type of angelic figure, but even still, their view of him was far too small. And so in the presence of the people who are maybe hearing this, these kinds of ideas about the identity of, of the Messiah, the identity of Jesus, Jesus points us to the very first king in Israel's, or the, the very first king in the lineage that would follow him from, from David. He points us to something fascinating that David said. He says in the beginning, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Essentially, just another king in the long lineage of kings. How can they say that he's just that, is what Jesus is saying. David himself declares in the Holy Spirit from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The argument goes like this. If Jesus and the, the Messiah is just a common, ordinary human, a, a significant leader, but just a common, ordinary human, then David would have said this, the Lord said to my great, 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 great grandson, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But that's not what David said. When David saw the coming Messiah, he saw a vision of someone who, yes, came from his lineage, but was far superior to him. David says the Lord 
said to this Messiah figure, my Lord, he's more significant than me. He's higher than me. Pure worship exalts Jesus while the scribes with their polluted, polluted worship just made him insignificant. But we can't stop just there. Because pure worship doesn't just go through the motions and say the words, yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus is important. Yes, we sing these things. But that's not how it works. If you follow me, I want you to see the way the crowd responded to this exalted view of Jesus in verse 37. David, said, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And here's the key. And the great throng heard him gladly. Here's my question for you this morning. As you engage in the act of worship, either here corporately or through your life, is there a sense of gladness when Jesus takes his proper position as exalted and magnified and glorified? Is there something delightful when you sing the songs that we sing, when you hear Jesus' words spoken, when you go through the liturgy? Is there something in you that's delighted in the reality that Jesus is exalted, or are these just words that are coming out of your mouth? Pure worship understands how significant, how big, how awesome Jesus is. And that's not just a factual statement. That's actually a delight. This crowd heard Jesus being exalted. And they responded by, by being glad. The crowd heard him gladly. So pure worship is seen in, in gladly exalting Jesus. There's another contrast that we'll move to as we continue down the passage. In our contrast, we see that polluted worship offers worship for a pretense, while pure worship is offered in private. Polluted worship is offered for a pretense. Pure worship is offered in private. What does it mean, a pretense? That's what Jesus says that their prayers were all about in verse 40. A pretense or a prayer offered in pretension is so that uh, they put on a show so that the person who's offering it seems significant. So a prayer or an act of worship done in pretense is done so that uh, human eyes can see the person who's doing it and think, that person, wow, they are pious. They are holy. They, they really have something with the Lord. Where on the other hand, the type of worship that the Lord delights in is private. It's before an audience of one. There is no concern with what people will think. Uh, doing it before the Lord is enough in and of itself. And what we see with the widow in this passage and the scribes are a contrast between these two types of worship. A worship offered in pretense and a worship offered in private. Let's just talk a little bit about how the scribes go about their kind of expressions of love for God. In verse 38, first of all, it says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, to be honest, who doesn't like a, a nice robe from everyone? once in a while in the privacy of your own home. Um, but uh, they, they liked to walk around in, in robes, not bathrobes, but, but robes that indicated them as religious leaders, uh, robes that set them apart from the common people that showed, wow, they really know the Bible. Hey, they really are, are righteous and pious. Look at their clothes. They, they wore them so, to attract attention. Then it says that they would uh, walk around in the long robes and they liked to have greetings in the marketplace. There was a custom in some of those places that when a religious leader, one of the scribes, would step onto the scene uh, in, in a place, maybe in the market or something like that, everyone would rise to their feet and set their attention on them to pay them honor. And they would greet them. Oh, oh Rabbi so-and-so, it's so good to have you here. Oh, uh, th this leader, I'm so glad that you blessed us with your presence. They loved to be greeted and receive honor. It continues to say that they had the best seats in the synagogue. 
If this were a synagogue, they'd probably be sitting either right here up front or right here behind me so that all eyes were on them and so they could easily address all of the people who had gathered there. They had the best seats in the synagogues. They had the places of honor at the feasts, kind of like the wedding party sits at a, at a, at a, uh, at a wedding, the, the place they have during the reception. That's kind of what it looked like for these religious leaders, but all the time, if there was a banquet, if there was a religious ceremony, they had this special seat, a uh, privileged seat amongst all the other people so that all the eyes could be on them, and they would offer long prayers for a pretense. They were saying prayer, which by definition is communicating with God, but their prayers weren't really about that. Their prayers were just for people to see how, how worshipful and how much they loved God. Their prayers were offered for a pretense. They were offered to put on a religious show. That's what the polluted worship in this instance looks like, but follow with me the situation with the widow, who we'll talk about in more in depth in just a moment. There is nothing public about what she's doing. She's offering what she has as an act of worship, and if Jesus had not pointed her out, no one else would have seen her. She doesn't have the nice long robe. She doesn't probably even get invited to the banquets. She doesn't uh, have the seat of honor in the synagogue. Her prayers are offered in the privacy of her home. Her acts of worship are not done so that she'll get applause from people. They're done in private. Now, I recognize that the long robes and the seat in the synagogue sounds a little bit disconnected from me, but I have to ask myself this morning, and I would love for you to reflect on this question as well. How much of your acts of worship or your service in the church are done so that you can seem significant? It's a question I have to ask myself all the time. How much of our, our public acts are done for a deep longing for recognition? They may look very good, but underneath the surface, there's simply a deep desire to be seen. Maybe some of you feel it right now, and you've been at Sojourn for a little while, and you do a lot around here. And maybe there's some other need. Uh, they're asking you to serve in kids or, or something along those lines, and you just have this subtle thought in your mind that says, man, don't they know how much I do here? Don't they know how much I do? Maybe you're leading a community group or you have some other significant piece of leadership and you get little recognition and you do a lot of work and you sometimes sit and wonder to yourself after all the work that you're doing, does anyone even notice all that I do here? You know the issue that I think with offering worship in a pretense to, to seek recognition is that we think that if human eyes don't see what we're doing and recognize us, then it ultimately becomes meaningless, failing to realize that the only eyes that matters see our acts of worship in clear view. Listen, I recognize some of you are at home right now, maybe with young kids. They take a lot and they give little thanks and you get little to no recognition. Some of you are in work situations where you want to do like it says in Colossians, uh, work with all your heart is unto the Lord and not unto men. But you struggle with the reality that with all the work you do, no one ever says anything and you never get recognized. How might your kind of unseen labor that you do in your life be transformed if you realize that my life is not going unseen? My life is lived before the face of God. The, the woman in this passage who offered her offering did not do it unseen. The eyes of Jesus were on her in that moment. How might the mundane, difficult, uh, tiresome areas of your life be transformed if you recognized the Lord of the universe sees everything, 
and I offer this uh, what may seem to be mundane act of service or worship to him. That's what pure worship looks like, I think. It's offered in private and recognizing that Jesus sees it is enough. So we've looked at a contrast between making Jesus small, gladly exalting him. We've looked at a contrast between offering our acts of service or worship as a show in pretense to seem significant versus doing it in private. The, the third contrast that we're going to see as we walk through this passage is a, is a contrast between one group of people who are taking and another person who's giving. And to be a little bit more specific, the next contrast that we'll see between the religious leaders and the widow was that uh, they were actually taking from those who suffer, whereas the poor widow was giving through sacrifice. They were taking from the people who were suffering, and she was giving through sacrifice. I didn't hit one of the points from uh, what the scribes were known from doing, because I want to address it right now. You know, so, so the scribes are here, and they're indicated as taking a lot of things. They're taking honor, they're taking the best seats, they're taking uh, kind of their robes that they wear in front of people. Um, the, the, the part about their taking that is most vile, that God hates the most, is what, what's seen in verse 40. Who devour widows' houses. That's what the scribes were known for doing. The widows' The orphans, the fatherless in those days, as in, I'm sure, our own, were some of the most vulnerable people, some of the most helpless people who were there. And yet these religious leaders um, had no problem in taking money, taking up offerings, taking whatever they could from them. And while they may be giving big offerings in the collection plate in the passage that we'll read in just a moment, that money is coming from people who are suffering, the very people that God had appointed them to protect. It reminded me of a modern-day example of this that I watched just on the internet from uh, a news station in Detroit where um, there had been a, a really large church service, and uh, that church uh, was regularly taking up offerings. That day they were asking people, hey, we want everyone to give $1,000. God's told us that every person gathered needs to give $1,000. And the problem that made it even more despicable was that it was surrounded by an extremely poor community in Detroit. So a group of people who loved their city went into that service and disrupted the whole thing. They were shouting and screaming and trying to bring it to a close. And as the newscasters uh, were interviewing the people, one person in particular who had gone in to kind of make this noise, he indicted the people with these words. This pastor is living a lavish lifestyle while we've got babies in this neighborhood going hungry at night a modern day example of I think what's happening in this passage. The pastor in this case was a million dollar salary driving a Rolls Royce while the people in their community were suffering and they were doing nothing to respond. Now we hear stories like that and obviously we're disgusted at it. I mean those who are in a position of power should use that position of power not to take from those who are suffering but to advocate for and serve them. I would love for us to ponder this question though. If you are in a position of authority, maybe in your workplace, maybe you're even a business owner, do you contend for the people who are suffering in our society, who are maybe working at a low wage, to be paid fairly? Do you do whatever you can within your power for uh, people, maybe immigrants who are here and just trying to get food on the table, do you do whatever you can for them to be advocated for? Maybe you sometimes have work done on your house, or uh, there's someone who cleans your home for you. 
Do you try to get the best deal possible so that you can save some money for yourself? Or what would it look like to actually give more than what's asked for for people you know in our community are struggling? Do we advocate for and serve and do whatever we can to bless those who are waiting our tables, working on our houses, mowing our lawns? While this may seem like a distant reality, it's something that we need to wrestle with ourselves. This is a type of polluted worship that might even give in the church, but at the end of the day, is keeping for self. The woman, on the other hand, shows us a very different kind of view of money. The woman, on the other hand, the, the widow was known for giving, but hear me, not just giving, giving in sacrifice. Let me read from verse 42. A poor, woman, a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all of those who were contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything. She put in everything that she had. Her, her act of worship at, through giving was done through sacrifice. Now, the first simple point that we have to see here is that giving of our money is not just kind of something we're supposed to do at church. It's actually an act of worship. That's, that's a, a regular part of our lives as Christians, to take what God has given us and to reinvest it in, in the kingdom of God, primarily through the local church. But just putting money in the offering box is not what Jesus is after. What Jesus is after, the question that he's asking is, when you give, does it cost you something? Is it sacrificial, or is it just some extra money you had lying around anyway? This woman was giving in sacrifice. She was giving out of her poverty. And we need to be aware that in, uh, in heavenly terms or, or before God, there's a divine exchange rate that takes place when we give. Those gifts that are given that may seem very uh, big and significant to human eyes but ac aren't actually offered in sacrifice mean very little to God. But those gifts that may be tiny to our eyes but are offered in sacrifice are pleasing and delightful to God. God does not look at the size of what we give, but the question of sacrifice. Even on my way home from uh, Sojourn last week, we were parked at a um, light, and there was a situation where someone was asking uh, for money, and my kids, we've been working really hard about uh, sharing and giving and not keeping money for yourself, and my uh, daughter Emily had uh, found a quarter somewhere, and that was literally all the money that she had, and she was grabbing my attention, Daddy, I want to give this quarter to, to that man. And I thought to myself, the opposite of how God views our giving, I thought to myself, oh, I don't want him, because I'm going to hand it to him. I don't want him to be offended and seem like it's an insignificant amount. I don't have any cash that I can add to it right now. And so I just kind of let him pass by without actually uh, giving the quarter that my daughter wanted to give to him. The good news for us tonight is even if you're, this morning, even if you're struggling financially, it does not matter what you give. If it's offered in sacrifice, God is not like that. God looks at the sacrifice of the gift, not the quantity. I know one of the confident hopes that Sojourn holds in the months and years to come is that this church would be marked by radical generosity. And I know you already have, man. We exist as a church because of the radical generosity offered here at Sojourn. I want to call on you this morning to continue to worship in, in private where no one will ever see by giving for you whatever a sacrificial gift would look like as you continue to worship. 
We've been, again, walking through the contrasts that this passage lays before us. There's one more contrast that's very important that we need to see before we close out. The, the fourth contrast between the religious leaders here and the, the poor widow was this. The religious leaders trusted in their moral performance for their salvation. This woman, on the other hand, gives us a picture of what it looks like to trust in God alone. The religious leaders were known from uh, doing their acts of worship, looking very pious, because that was one of the things that would contribute to them having a good standing with God. Uh, for them to be uh, viewed as acceptable and, and loved by God, they needed to have a record of them keeping up with the rules, and they would be able to present that to God as a reason for why, would, why they should be accepted. The woman gives us a picture of what it looks like to trust in God for your acceptance and salvation, to trust in him alone, bringing nothing to the table. In verse 44, I'm going to read it one more time, and notice something specifically that Jesus pointed out. He said, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. Here's the key. All she had to live on. Now, many of us would look at that and say, of course we need to give and we need to be sacrificial, but my goodness, like, we need to have some wisdom in that. You gave all you had to live on. Some of us would say in doing that, I mean, she's committed suicide. She's given up all the resources that she had. If she's, how is she even going to be able to live given that she's given up everything? And what I want you to see, friends, is that this woman, in giving up everything that she had, did not commit suicide. She committed herself entirely to God. She committed herself entirely to God. She's given up all she has. She's empty-handed, and she's in a posture where she now has to go before the Lord in the privacy of her own prayers and say, okay, listen, nothing, I have nothing left in my hands. If I'm going to live, it depends entirely upon you. She gave all she has to live on, and in doing so, she entrusts herself to God, saying, I have nothing in my hands. If I'm going to survive, if I'm going to be saved, then you're the one who's going to have to do all of the work. Friends, this is a picture of what it looks like to have saving faith. Faith that says, nothing in my hands I bring. If I am going to have a right relationship with you, if I'm going to enter into heaven, it will be because of the provisions of Jesus alone. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. I cling. I was in uh, reading a uh, Tim Keller uh, sermon earlier this week that had a story in it that I think captures what the essence of saving faith and fully depending on God for your salvation is all about. He recorded a story of a guy who was a famous kind of daredevil, and he often walked on tight ropes across buildings and in very dangerous situations. He called himself Blondin, and he had an assistant whose name was Henry. And uh, he would often attract crowds, but he was going to do something that was going to attract a bigger crowd than he ever had before. He was going to take his rope, he was going to go up to Niagara Falls, he stretched that thing across the falls, and he invited people to come see as he walked that tightrope across the whole thing. I mean, risking his life because if he falls, game over. 
So he walks across the tightrope, and the first time uh, the crowds applaud, but he keeps doing it, and they kind of get bored with it, so he has to start adding to it. He goes across the tightrope the next time, and this time he has a big bag on his head that he's balancing as he walks across. Uh, to bring more numbers in and more crowds out, he blindfolds himself. Then after that, he, uh, he, he even rides a bike across it. On one occasion, they recorded that he actually brought a little cooktop stove into the middle of this tightrope and that he cooked up an omelet as he stood over this dangerous falls down below and people were applauding and celebrating him as he would do that. But then he was going to do something that was going to attract the biggest crowd yet. Uh, something that was so over the top that, that uh, just thousands of people would come. He said, I need a volunteer because the next time I walk across this thing, I'm going to carry a human being on my back. Who's going with our man Blondin across that? I thought so. I wouldn't do it either. Well, the people in that instance were quite bold. They said, no big deal. I've seen him do a lot of times. I'll jump on his back. No problem. And so uh, they, they get someone who is kind of the perfect height and weight to be able to balance on their good. And the day comes and they said that at least 100,000 people in attendance had gathered that day. And he looks to the people who said they would do it. And when they stand over the falls, they say, no way. Now that I see it, I'm not going to do it. So there was only one option left to do. He goes to his assistant, Henry, and says, Henry, 100,000 people are here. Sorry, man, you're going to have to jump on my back, and we're going to walk across this thing together. Henry puts his trust in him. He puts him on his back, and he starts walking across this tightrope, this extremely dangerous thing. And as they get to the middle of this thing, this thing starts to sway. This thing starts to shake. Uh, the, the guy who's walking across it pauses. And because of the, the swaying that's happening, the assistant that's on his back is doing anything that we would do. He tries to, to kind of counterbalance himself and balance him on there. At the moment, the tightrope walker, Blondin, uh, yells at his assistant, listen to me. If we're going to make it across this thing alive, you have to entrust yourself totally to me. Do not try to save yourself. If you try to balance this thing, we will fall off. If you are going to make it alive across this, if you're going to be saved, you have to become one with me. Let go of trying to save yourself. Let go of trusting in your performance and give your life totally over to my hands. Friends, that's what Jesus invites us to do when he offers us salvation when he offers us eternal life, when he offers us forgiveness, he says, look away from yourself. If you try to save yourself, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Become one with me. Fully trust in me. The Bible says that we are Am I good? Yeah, the Bible says that all of us are in a position where I might, I might just handheld this thing to quote, we don't have that. That's okay. All right, I'm going to keep going, and if it crackles, we'll just roll with it. Here's the deal. All of us this morning find ourselves in a position where there's nothing that we can do to obtain a right relationship with God on our own. If he's going to accept us, it will be based on the merits of Jesus alone. We'll roll with this. Thank you so much.